Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Hi. You know that movie you always wanted to see, but you didn't for whatever reason? Well, I call those black hole films. Everyone has them, and this podcast aims to do something about that. I'm Jeremy Lalonde, and every episode I'll be joined by one or more guests to watch a film that at least someone in that group hasn't seen. We'll talk about our expectations of it before it, and then our thoughts after it. This is episode 44, and I'm by myself, doing part two of my James Bond capsule reviews. Uh, This mostly covers the films of Roger Moore, with a brief dip back into the world of Sean Connery for his final James Bond film, assuming he doesn't make any more. Uh, So this covers the films from Live and Let Die, all the way through to A View to a Kill. So sit back and grab a dry martini, because I'm going to sit down and watch a whack load of movies. So I've just finished watching the first of this new installment, Live and Let Die, and oh boy, oh boy. Um, So this is the first Roger Moore film of the Bond collection and uh, and I don't actually know if I've ever seen any of these upcoming so they're all black holes for me as far as I know I don't recall seeing any Roger Moore Bond films uh, so there's that what a what an interesting film um, it's not the first film by director Guy Hamilton I think it's his third Bond film so he's at ease inside of the genre and kind of I don't know how much this is him or how much of it's Eon Pictures or or who decides this, Um, but they've definitely gone for something interesting here in the sense that this film is setting out to be something more than just a typical Bond film, and it's almost like two films at the same time, or at least two genres that are pitted against each other. You've got the typical British spy film, but then they've... Introduce this element of black exploitation, which does not mix well. I mean, it it creates a really interesting, you know, stylistic thing that's going on. That's quite interesting. But you know, pretty much every person of color in this film is on the side of evil, and it's you know, it's easily the most racially diverse film this series has done so far. But the fact that all the actors that are persons of color or, or stereotypes it does not make up for it um you know western indian and caribbean religions are misrepresented the voodoo is set up as if it's an evil thing with you know all the way down to human sacrifices virginal sacrifices or, or just the way that virgins are idealized um you know uh jane seymour's character who is this fortune teller magically loses her powers once she has sex for the first time with James Bond. So, you know, the, the question asked, you know, <laughs> James Bond goes from, not James Bond, but I mean, James Bond in this film is actually, you know, one of the better James Bonds we've had. He's he's not the, the big creep that we usually see. He's charming, he's funny, he's kind of accessible compared to how, how Bond is. He's kind of dry. I mean, Roger Moore... He's a great Bond. I get it. I know why he's so revered now. But the film itself is, you know, unintentionally racist, I want to say. I don't think they're trying to be terrible, but, you know, it's hard for the film to to stand up. Especially when you got, you know, in one of your opening scenes, you're the cab driver. Say, for 20 bucks, I'll let you take me to a Ku Klux Klan meeting. You know, in the when the cab driver is is a black man. So, yeah, I mean, let's talk about the good things of this movie. The good things are that, you know, Bond is a great Bond for the first time, really, I think. I really, really enjoyed him, although I really, really enjoyed the the Bond in Honor Majesty's Secret Service as well. Um, some of the set pieces are great. The airport set piece where they destroy a whole bunch of planes doing some crazy stuff is pretty great and over the top there's a great boat chase um near the end of the film where they go over a road at one point it's pretty cool uh yafet koto's death scene is their fight is great their fight is nice and brutal um 
and and I like that about it. But then the the shots when he actually dies, the effects are so bad. The uh, the double the body thing, whatever they use, especially when you watch it on Blu-ray like I did, it it's so glaringly obvious that, that thing is not a human being. So um, yeah, this was an interesting film. It was kind of a, a departure for Bond, um, a failure in that, but really, as terms of the character and reinventing the character for a new actor. I think it was a success. Although he didn't drink a martini, he drank bourbon, which was a nice kind of twist and surprise for James Bond. I didn't hate it. I uh, didn't love it. And yeah, and I kind of fell asleep during it. So there's that. Next up is the man with the golden gun. So this is definitely one of the ones I had not seen before. My only real connection to this movie was that I really loved the Golden Gun um, weapon in the Golden Eye N64 game that you could you could kill someone with one shot. I really enjoyed that. So that was my only uh, into this movie. Uh, I th- knew that Christopher Lee was a famous Bond villain, but I totally didn't know that it was this movie that he was in. So that was a really lovely surprise early on. Uh, what a trippy opening sequence. And ridiculous, that whole funhouse set. Uh, I like that it bookended the movie. I like that kind of stuff. I'm nerdy that way. Uh, but man, what like what a ridiculous thing in general. I mean, it's just a ridiculous thing for that guy to have who sees himself as a professional I mean, I guess it speaks to something of his past that we never get to see. The uh, the flamboyance of his background. Maybe he was in the circus. We don't know. But what an interesting, interesting setup. The character of Knickknack is uh, a fascinating, somewhat challenging thing. I'm going to say the actor's name wrong, I'm sure. Uh, I believe it's Hervé Villachez. I apologize if I got that wrong. Uh, this is the guy that was tattooed on Fantasy Island. And, you know, here's the thing. is like He's a really solid actor. And it's kind of a shame that he's regulated to the little people joke. He's referred to as a midget. Um, just nonstop, they're just playing into his height. And, you know, the final insult is that he's stuffed into a suitcase. So that's a shame, uh, although not unin line with how Bond kind of stereotypes people and things. So there's that. There, there's the moment when they first get to Hong Kong and they play the James Bond theme, but with Asian instruments uh, that I really enjoyed. I don't know if that's a terrible thing or not. I'm culturally appropriating the Bond theme, but I thought that that was, uh, I don't even know if that's a, the correct way of using the term cultural appropriation. So maybe I'm just crazy on all fronts. But uh, I really, I thought that was a nice touch. I enjoyed that. There's a lot of stuff that I really liked. And there's some stuff that continues to be problematic with James Bond. I mean, I'll never get over and comfortable with him just hitting women uh, and forcing them to go along with, with whatever plan he's concocted. That said, you know, the the women are getting slightly more progressive. Uh, the uh, the Andrews, Andrew Andrews, I think is the name of the characters. No. Maude Adams is the actor uh, who played the uh, the ill-fated Bond girl in this one, as there always has to be, because um, even as Scaramenta says, or Sacramenta, Scaramenta, says, you know, forget the girl, she's replaceable, because typically Bond girls are replaceable. They, they rarely show up more than once. But she's a secret weapon here, and she's she's used differently than women are. And, and there's so much of the story that revolves around what she's doing behind the scenes and what she's setting up. And it's a lot more credit than the women in these films usually have gotten up to this point. So that's a nice change. I really like the character of, of Goodnight after the, after the first little bit when she seemed to be just beauty over brains. I like that she they went on that date and she rejected him, but then it's just kind of a reversal 
because two seconds later she's in his bedroom and then she gets stuffed into a closet and is forced to listen to him have sex with the other woman. And then when she gets out, he tells her that her turn will come. I mean, what a lucky lady. So that stuff's challenging and problematic, but I guess that's kind of what you get when you sign up for a James Bond movie. There's also the super racist stuff with a tourism guy who refers to people as pointy heads and says that they're in their pajamas and whatnot. And how does he know that Bond is a secret agent from England? That I just don't understand. I don't understand why that whole bit was in the movie. And then he, sh- he shows up and ends up helping him escape in that really long, over-the-top sequence that gets Bond to Scaramenta's hidden locale, fortress thing. That, ugh, I, I could have really, really done without that whole character. I don't understand why it was there, other than the fact that at the time, I guess they thought it was funny to show a, a redneck racist in a James Bond movie. I guess, I don't know. I'm, I'd be curious to know how that played at the time. It certainly does not hold up well. I really like Christopher Lee as a villain. I thought he was refreshing. He wasn't, you know, a mustache twirling guy. He felt like a real person. I like that he and Bond saw each other as equals. I like that he had a code of honor. That was really interesting. I like that the the storyline revolved around what I can only imagine was really topical at the time. Solar energy and, and all that kind of stuff. So I thought that was a nice switch. And I think it's different than the source material. Although I haven't read the source material. I'm just assuming that when that, that story was written, it was not something that was front page news. I continue to enjoy Roger Moore. I think he's... You know, a far better Bond than Connery ever was because Connery just comes off as smarmy and super sleazy and creepy with the women. So whatever, you know, good stuff Connery has, that stuff just really, really overshadows it. So overall, I was really kind of surprised by how much I liked this one, um, despite all the stuff that I really didn't like about it, which is part and parcel for the time, I suppose. Uh, I liked the ending, despite the ridiculousness of the the funhouse setup. I really liked the the stuff with the laser, and as Bond was trying to get that the silicon thingy out of the machine, you think that the laser's turned off, and you're just watching the sun. I really enjoyed that aspect to the end. Um, yeah, overall, it's it it was much better than I expected coming off of Live or Let Die. Next up is the Spy Who Loved Me. treat what a delightful treat and surprise this movie was i really gotta say i totally understand why a lot of people say roger moore is their favorite bond um and i don't know if it's just that it's he got lucky that he ended up in the films he ended up in or what but i totally get it uh because this is easily one of the best bond films um you know where do i start uh, <laughs> that opening skiing sequence is phenomenal. I mean, even by today's standards, especially the fact that it just holds in that great long shot, just watching, you know, the skis come off and the poles flip and the parachute come out. I mean, that's an amazing stunt. The guy even gets uh, a c- opening credit, uh, the stunt performer that, that did that. It's an opening credit. It's, it's, it's amazing. I love um, the... Uh, before I, I get into that, actually, I want to talk. So the only thing that bothered me about the opening sequence, and I love that it plays in later on. It's not just this empty, great opening sequence. I love that the guy that he kills has ramifications later on with uh, with our main Bond girl or woman. I would prefer to say. Uh, 
I just don't get why those four people are just waiting on the top of the hill for him to randomly leave whenever he's done with the girl. I mean, just storm inside. There's four of you. You've all got guns. What's? It's just one of those typical Bond things. Uh, anyway, where I was starting to go was that uh, the Nobody Does It Better by Carly Simon. What a great... I didn't know that that was a James Bond theme. Uh, so that was a nice surprise. And I love how it's weaved in throughout the film. And they use different instrumentation uh, to score different aspects of how they want you to feel. There's this sleazy, sexy jazz version. Uh, not jazz, sorry, uh, saxophone version later on in the film at one point. Uh, really enjoyed that. The Carl Stromberg character is uh, a bit much. He's the super over-melodramatic, you know, he's the Dr. Evil type character living in that underground lair with sharks and all that stuff. It's just so over the top. You know, anyway. That said, we get Jaws in this movie. Richard Keel is fantastic. I'm so excited he comes back in the next one that he was indestructible... You know, that scene where the he just rips apart that car when they're trying to get away, it's just phenomenal. And that hilarious shot of them driving away after with the car just falling apart <laughs> is a really, really great sequence. I don't know why he drives them out to the desert to that location other than to maybe get the upper hand on them because it doesn't seem to have much of a purpose either. Uh, Egypt, in general, is a really beautiful backdrop for this film. I love the sequence at the pyramids where they've got um, the the public show of whatever going on and the backdrop of this little fight sequence we have. Uh, you know, The colors are changing and allowing characters to disappear and reappear and be revealed and that little narration that's going on by the presenter of whatever it is. You know, I really, really, really enjoyed that sequence. Um... Barbara Back is phenomenal as Agent Triple X, or Anya is her actual name. Uh, easily one of the best Bond women ever, especially in the fact that, you know, she's essentially his equal. I love the way she's introduced. You, you assume that it's James Bond in bed with a woman getting a mission, and then you realize that, no, it's her getting the mission, and that she's essentially the Russian equivalent of James Bond. Um... And they never play any kind of sexism in the sense that she's good at what she does. They just play it straight. They play it as it should be done. It's really progressive, progressive for this series at this point and, and a much-needed change. You know, and I love that she knows James Bond's... She's got his number. She knows his drink. She knows how he acts. And she's not having it. She's not swayed by him easily. And she even uses the game against him. I was so happy when that first kiss was just a way for her to double-cross him. You know, really, really, really loved how that was set up. And I love that as soon as they've had their worst moment together is just when they're told they have to work together. I thought that was really great. Uh, James Bond has a lot of fights on trains. <laughs> I'm just going to say that. I did find that the, uh, the quips... The, the only thing I don't love that I find is more and more happening in... Uh, in the Roger Moore ones, is the number of quips that he has as Bond. They feel a bit over the top and a bit too frequent. I could do without some of those. I love that she threatens to kill him at the end of the mission. Um, you know, I love that she's a stronger female character overall, and she I think she's the beginning of that in this series. Um, you know, he still wins her over at the end because he's James Bond. But I like that she... You know, she had a relationship and a life before him, and she has her opinions, and, and, and she's a proper human character. It's great. There's this giant action sequence, kind of at the beginning of what would probably be the third act, where it's just a lot of gunfire and things shooting and missiles and submarines, and it put me to sleep. It literally did. Uh, and I, I, I luckily I woke up in time for them to come back to... Him going off to, to save the girl, as it were. And, and that sequence was great for me. I, I, like the, I, I like action that I can follow that has a relevance to the storyline. You know, I loved his final fight with Jaws. I love that Jaws survived. I love that Jaws killed a shark. I mean, that's fucking pretty cool. I don't understand what that magnet was for in the lair, other than to pick up Jaws if they needed to. 
overall, this film does really great in terms of, you know, stuff with race and misogyny. It's better than it's ever been in this series, with the exception of that one early scene where Bond pops by to a friend's place and he offers him this young woman to sleep with just to get him to stay for the evening. It's super gross that it's offered. It's even gross that Bond accepts it. And it just adds nothing to the story other than to show that Bond gets with women, which we know. You know, with the exception of that, this movie feels like a really good step in the right direction for the franchise. I really, really enjoyed it. And, you know, it, it, it's definitely feeling like this era of the James Bond film, for me, holds up far stronger than almost anything in the Connery era. Next up is Moonraker. James Bond in space. Just like the Moonraker goes In search of his dream of gold So everything that was really great about The Spy Who Loved Me is terrible about Moonraker. I don't even know where to begin. I mean, the whole thing just feels like a terrible version of the last film. Ugh. Roger Moore got old in the last two years. Yeah, I hate saying that, but it's true. It's just the first scene you see him in, I didn't even recognize him for a second. I had, I had to take a moment and realize that it was him, because it's just, for some reason, he did not age well in those two years. Uh, I, I, I apologize for being superficial that way, but I, I can't. I'd be remiss not to mention that I noticed. Uh, 7-Up seemed to be a a very specific sponsor in this film. Their logo was everywhere. I don't know if that's a weird thing to notice, but I noticed that. Uh, Let's let's start with some good stuff, okay? Let's let's do that. Uh, Great set pieces in this, as per usual. The opening with the parachute is phenomenal. Although it doesn't really come into play the way that the the amazing snow sequence or the snow the skiing sequence did in the previous film, where that ties in directly to the entire narrative later on in the film. This one is basically just exists to let us know that Jaws is still alive and back. And I guess now he's just a gun for hire or a giant mouth thing for hire. Uh, yeah, and I mean, why hire that guy? He failed last time. You know, he's not even particularly good at catching James Bond. Uh, and everything that was great about Jaws in, in the previous film, it just turns him into, like, Wile E. Coyote in this movie. I mean, the guy survived. It doesn't matter what you throw at him. He's going to survive it. You can fall over a cliff, a waterfall. He's going to survive it. He can He can fall from the sky without a parachute working, and he'll survive it. It just turns him into a villain where it doesn't matter what happens to him because he's just a cardboard cartoon villain. I mean, even when James Bond kicks him in the crotch, he just has this hollow thud. Like, what is he, a a machine? And then he randomly falls in love in the middle of the movie. It's just so fucking bizarre and weird and such a, a sad you know, downfall from how great that character was in the previous film. And he speaks at the end? Ugh. And becomes a good guy? Double ugh. Ugh, ugh. I really like the uh, the intro to the villain Drax. I like his line, um, look after Bond, make sure some harm comes to him. But then the rest of it doesn't make any sense. I mean, Bond clearly knows this guy is after him when he shoots down the dude that's in the tree when they go pheasant hunting. But he just hands the gun back and then jumps in the car. I mean, why didn't this guy just shoot him? Like, what was stopping him? This guy clearly had more money than God, and I, I just don't get the elaborateness of these schemes. I didn't understand the whole point of this plot for most of the movie. It was just frustrating. I mean, I was excited about this movie because of how good the last one was. And also, I kept on thinking, James Bond in space... He doesn't get into a ship for 90 goddamn minutes of this film. What a sad letdown. I mean, clearly the whole damn thing is just trying to cash in on Star Wars, which came out two years earlier. 
I mean, right down to the end when he has to take the the, the ship out of manual out of, out of automatic and has to manually shoot, make this impossible shot to take down this this warhead that has nerve gas that's going to kill hundreds of thousands of people. Everything, and then okay, so let's talk about the is it Doctor Goodhead? Is it? Is that her name? She's a CIA agent, so already they're just completely copying the entire dynamic from The Spy Who Loved Me. But the introduction, I mean, he, he finds out she's a doctor. You know, he's looking for a doctor, and she says that she's it. And his response is, a woman? It's like, ugh, really? Like, who is this guy? Where, where, where was this pro- slightly progressive James Bond we had in the previous film? Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, maybe it's still a bit more progressive. She seems to be some kind of an equal to him once we realize she's a CIA agent. But, I mean, she just doesn't have the spark that Agent Triple X, or whatever her name was, and Spy Who Loved Me. It just feels like a real step backwards for the Bond women in this film. Uh, we literally get the exact same ending of the last film as well where the superiors for both countries look in on the two of them making love in the vessel that they're left in. This time, instead of being a thing from the water, they're, uh, they're in space. And, and Q even gets the, the innuendo joke about him about to be able, about to go into re-entry. Ugh. Wow. Um, weird other observations. There's this door hallway door key that he had to enter at one point that was musical. It sounded like the same song from Close Encounters, which was interesting. Again, I think they're just cashing in on bastardizing sci-fi from this era of, of cinema. In the middle of the film, he go, he gets suspended and then goes to Rio, which the, the Bond agency people seem to know about. I mean, the same thing as in the last movie... When he was in Egypt, you know, M and Q and Moneypenny just magically had this office where Bond was with a full staff and their desks and everything. That just felt weird. And so it took me this whole movie to figure out what the hell was going on, why I should care, what just what the point was. And then you get to it and it's, you know, James Bond essentially points it right out when he calls it the Noah's Ark story where clearly he wants to kill the population of Earth and replace them with really good-looking people because he values things that are good-looking. There's even this, this, this set piece in the middle of the film, or earlier on in the film, where we introduce this room full of priceless, super-expensive glass pieces only for them to destroy it after. So I guess we're setting up Drax as some kind of shallow bastard who just likes beautiful things. The plot just doesn't make sense. I mean, so the science of it indicates that beautiful people who mate instantly make beautiful people and that their genes don't skip generations and all these other things that automatically take place. I mean, kudos to the fact that it's not a completely whitewashed group. There is some mixed races in there. But even amongst even amongst this this fleet of, what is it, six or seven ships they've got up there, it's not a ton of families going on that they're going to use to repopulate this Earth. There is going to be some incest going on in this bloodline, which will also not make it a superior race going forward. And this nerve glass, like, what's the shelf life of it after it kills all the people on Earth? How long is it going to take for these people to be able to return to the planet? Ugh. So, I mean, I'm going to stop now because I just feel like I'm I'm kicking a retarded puppy when it comes to this movie. Apologies to all retarded puppies. But, man, it's just so bad and such a letdown after The Spy Who Loved Me, which I I think was one of my favorite Bond movies so far. So, uh, yeah, Uh, I mean, I kind of shit on this as much as one can. So, yeah, I'm kind of looking forward to the next one, which I believe is For Your Eyes Only. For your eyes only can see me through the night. For your eyes only, I never need to hide. 
So for your eyes only. You know, I really enjoyed that this was kind of a a grittier return to form after, you know, the last couple of films that have really felt like genre mashups, which doesn't, I mean, it's not a bad concept in keeping James Bond fresh and, and relevant for for what was current cinema at the time, but uh, it just felt like gimmicky filmmaking, where this feels like they've taken Bond, they've decided to return to form and make the film a bit more, a bit grittier, a bit more, you know, rooted in reality as much as James Bond ever could be. You know, it even goes so far to really try to connect to uh, to the previous era of Bond by by the way it starts the film. Go uh, him going to Teresa Bond's grave from On Her Majesty's Secret Service, uh, which kind of kills the theory that James Bond is multiple people. I think anyway, in in that. Uh, you know he's celebrating the the death of a wife from the George Lazenberry era. Uh, you've also got uh, Blowfield in the opening, although he's never quite mentioned as Blowfield. I think that's a lawsuit issue. Uh, and you know he eventually kills Blowfield once and for all, or so it should seem. Uh, I like the opening anyway. It was it was probably the more over the top section of the film. Uh, and it was too bad that it didn't really carry over into the rest of the story, but entertaining nonetheless. Great, great sequence with the helicopter. The main theme song is not my favorite. It's uh, but very much of the era. Something struck me as being a bit more cinematic in this than other recent Bond efforts of that era. Uh, I can't quite put my finger on it, but there just felt like a really strong point of view. Um, and, uh, and I really enjoyed that. I like, uh, so what was great about this movie is the, um, is the portrayal of the women characters for the most part. The, uh, let's first talk about the figure skater, the BB, I believe is her name. It's, you know, because Moore is the oldest Bond, uh, and he's definitely aging at this point for sure. Um, he comes off as old enough to be that girl's grandfather, and he even calls it, which is great, and, and something that, you know, Bond would not have done in a previous film. You know, Bond doesn't care if they're too young, uh, but but he did this time, and that was kind of refreshing and nice. But either way, she's just really, you know, infantilized, which is such a creepy kind of thing. It, it, I don't know what the purpose of it is, other than that it's a trope at this point, I guess, that every woman has to want to be with James Bond. Um, that said, Melina, Melina, I'm going to say Melina, is a great Bond girl. You know, she's also on the younger side, probably not quite young enough to be his granddaughter, but probably his daughter. But other than that, she's his equal in every way. And that's kind of what's been happening in the last few Bond films. And it's a really refreshing change of pace. Uh, you know, she's got a mission of her own. She doesn't put up with any nonsense. She's dressed practically when they're going around, you know, and she's not just dressed for us to be titillized by her. She's got a crossbow and she knows how to use it. You know, this is a really fantastic Bond girl and it's a shame we don't get a bit more of her later on. Uh, what else did I notice? Oh, that scene with the computer recognition software was pretty funny with Q. I like that. The hockey player fight is so ridiculously cheesy. Uh, especially with the way the, the score goes up when they each hit into the net. I think my favorite sequence in the entire film was the rock climbing sequence near the end. Uh, it was fantastic. I mean, the stunts in that scene are breathtaking. I love that they drop the score away. And it's just the sounds of the clinking and the clanking and that guy trying to knock him down. Uh, those big wide shots that really just show someone dangling from the cliff. Really, really great stuff. Um, you know, just silence and tension. Really, really, really great. I like that he's a team with him. It's not just him, uh, as it is so often. I like that he's he's surrounded by other people. I like that the, the movie kind of plays into what's going on in history at the time. And it's got the conflict with the Russians. You know, I really, really enjoyed that. Uh, I will say that, you know, there wasn't a ton that I didn't dislike about this movie. I thought it was a pretty solid Bond movie. 
Uh, I got to say the plot wasn't super interesting or original. It just kind of felt like cookie cutter James Bond in that sense. But, you know, the pieces are in place and they're working for the most part. I, uh, I nodded off a little less than I normally do with these movies. I find they're, they're a slow burn. Uh, so this one I enjoyed. I really, really dug it. And uh, next time we have uh, Never Say Never Again coming up, which is technically not an official James Bond movie. It's not one of the Eon movies. But it is a final film from James Connery. James Connery. Sean Connery. So, uh, so that'll be fun. Welcome back, Sean Connery. Uh, no Bond theme here to open up the film, obviously. We don't get the little uh, gun circle transition either. I didn't know that this movie was directed by Irvin Kirshner. That was super exciting for me. So this is him coming off of Empire Strikes Back. Very exciting. Um, the title, I guess, uh, from what I've read, is in reference to Connery's declaration 12 years prior that he would never play Bond again. So that's kind of fun and interesting. I really, really liked the intro. I liked uh, watching Connery just sneak around. Taking everyone out silently was really, really impressive. Uh, and just as impressive as watching some of the crazy stunts they've been using to open the Eon James Bond films recently. There's real elegance his movements here that weren't present in some of the early iterations of his version of the super spy. And then I love that it was just a training session and, uh, and that he was losing his touch and had to go into some kind of a rehab facility. I thought that was really, really nice. I like that there's a new M and they were talking about how the double O's were kind of at a commission. Uh, I, you know, there's all the, just the dialogue speaking to the newer era and the older era and, uh, you know, they talked about the car and how they don't make them like this anymore. But Bond insists that it's still in great shape. It's a good metaphor for, for Bond himself. Liked all that kind of stuff. Spectra's back. That's fun. Uh, this is the first time I, I think I've heard what the ac- acronym meant. If it was in the earlier films, I missed it. Uh, for those that don't know, it's Special Executive for Counterintelligence, Terrorism, Revenge, and Extortion. And Max von Sydow is Blowfield. Super enjoyable. I would have loved to have seen more of him in the film. I uh, I felt he was kind of underused. Um, and playing into the old James Bond, I really enjoyed that we got to see him kind of weakened and struggling, especially that amazing fight sequence in the rehab clinic. I have no idea who that guy was or why he was trying to kill him. Uh, if it was explained, I missed it. Uh, I really liked that it took place all through the, the clinic and we just saw him get his butt handed to him. I like that he got shit at the end and that he was kind of held culpable, which is pretty rare for James Bond. He just kind of runs around and and kills and does whatever he needs to and and never seems to get in trouble for it. So it's always nice to see uh, some consequences to actions in films like this. The car chase with the snake snake throw uh, with the Fatima character and uh, killing uh, Domino's brother was super fun. Uh, her character was pretty fun in general. It's nice to see a woman villain getting to be the over-the-top psychopath for once. Uh, although I didn't love the shift after she had sex with James Bond. I mean, she didn't become one of those characters that all of a sudden shifts her allegiance. Uh, but she became kind of obsessed with being his number one lover that ultimately ended with him being able to shift her attention and kill her with that kind of funky gun bomb pen that Q gave him. Let's talk about Kim Basinger for a second. So she gets a hell of an intro, and damn, she's flexible at this point in her life. It's an interesting character. I uh, was really upset by how when Connery first meets her and he's, he's faking being the masseuse, he takes that moment to really, really take in her nude body when he's giving her the massage and she's flipping over him. It's really gross and lecherous, especially given the age difference between the two of them. I mean, the fact that he goes in as an undercover masseuse, too, and just the fact that they chose that as the way for him to try to get to her is a bit off-putting. And when she finds out that he doesn't even work there, she has this look of horror on her face, which is appropriate, and then suddenly she has a grin, and it just made me kind of go... Gr- 
Ugh. Anyway. You know, her character's a bit of a challenge. I mean, she's a person with hopes and dreams, and she has a real affection for her brother. And her alliance shifts because of her brother and finding out what happened to him, and not because of Sean, Sean Connery's sexual prowess. Um, but she's still seen as an object to own, you know, which is mentioned several times that, that, that alluded to that she is owned by, by uh, the rich dude. And she's even threatened to be sold later on in the film. And she's far, 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 far too young for this version of James Bond. I mean, she could be his granddaughter. As much as I love basing her on the film and she's charming and everything that she always is, it's just a, a tough relationship to get behind. Really enjoyed seeing Rowan Atkinson here as a bit of a comic foil uh, in the film. Underused as well. Would have loved to see a bit more of him. What's really great about Sean Connery coming back here to do his final Bond 12 years later is that he's a much better actor at this point. He's not mugging as much. Um, you know, the, the James Bond lines that are, that are typically really ham-fisted, the, the puns, uh, he does them as throwaway lines, and they, they're all the better for it. It comes off as him just being really clever and not caring as opposed to really just laboring those lines and making letting us know just how clever and smart he is. Uh, the one that really stood out for me was when he was underwater in that shark sequence. And then the fishing lady, I'm, I'm sorry, I forgot her name, uh, reeled him up. And he said, you did say you'd catch me later. Where it just feels like any of the previous Bonds would have really milked that line. And Connery just threw it away and it made it made it all the better. Uh, I don't know how that... I think that video game that they played later on in the film is called Dominance. I have no idea how the hell fuck that game worked. Um, other than that, they tortured each other if they threw nuclear weapons at one another. Anyway, that was a bizarre and interesting pissing contest. Wherein Bond wins a quarter of a million dollars and just decides to, again, show that Domino is, is a person that can be bought by just exchanging the quarter million dollars for a dance with her. There's a really awesome motorcycle scene in here that's pretty fantastic, especially when you think he's being captured and then he turns the tables on it. Super, super fun. Really enjoyed that. I have to say that, in general, the plot of this film kind of baffles me, how it goes from point A to point B. It feels, it's not even convoluted, it just doesn't feel like they connect the dots, and I'm just supposed to figure out a lot of stuff for myself. I enjoy the action, and uh, and I was kind of involved in the stakes and the characters in this one. But I gotta say, and this is this is standard in a lot of Bond films, where I just don't know what the hell is going on sometimes, or how they get from one point to another. And I like to think I'm not a dumb film goer, but that just feels to me like a, a signature of the Bond films, where the, the plot is a bit haphazard, and I'm constantly confused by where I'm at in the movie and what's going on. And I feel like that's the kind of thing that makes me nod off from time to time. Or maybe it's the fact that I nod off that makes me not realize where I am. Not sure which is the chicken and the egg in that scenario. Overall, I enjoyed this film. I thought it was um, another one of the, the less over-the-top and goofy James Bonds, which I prefer. Uh, I like that that it felt like a nice outing for Connery. Kind of an F.U. to the Eon franchise, with him retiring at the end, saying never again. But that's, again, of course, what Connery said about returning to Bond. So, I mean, the guy's still alive. We could still see a, a really old James Bond film at this point. It's not impossible. So next up, we, uh, we're back to Roger Moore for his last two films. Uh... The next in which is Octopussy. All I wanted was a sweet distraction for an hour or two. Had no intention to do the things we've done. So that's Octopussy. Yeah, I gotta say, I was not expecting much based on the title of this movie. Um, to be honest with you, it's one of the original uh, stories. I think the, the title is lifted from, from something, from Bond lore, but the story itself, from what I know, is completely original, which is uh, fun to see. And they, I guess they had to do eventually. Bond doesn't have enough material, and the books just go on and on and on. 
I gotta say, it makes a huge difference when you start a Bond movie with that theme song. It just doesn't feel right without it. I really like the opening of the film, although it's sadly unconnected to the rest of the movie. I liked him escaping from the horse trailer with that little plane that was super fast, using their own Bond against their own missile against them. Classic Bond, you know. And Roger Moore gets his his one liner, the filler up. <laughs> he drives. Rolls up to a gas station in his plane. It's fun. Roger Moore is looking distinguished here. I, I keep on being a bit of an ageist and saying that he's looking old as Bond, but either I'm getting used to it or he just continues to, to grow on me. You know, I really, really like Roger Moore as Bond. And uh, and I got to say, this is part of, the, part of their big joy of rewatching all these movies, and especially the, this era, because I don't think I'd seen any of them was discovering how great Roger Moore was as Bond. I love that we come out of the credits into the sequence with the clown being chased, uh, and I love that it's later revealed that it's a double agent, a double O agent, I should say, 009. Uh, I like that how they reveal that it's twins chasing him. There's this great cut where you see one off to the side, and then all of a sudden they're there, and you know your brain goes, hey, how's that guy so goddamn fast? And he realizes it's twins, and it's a really smart and clever, clever introduction to that visually. Good job, director of this film, who I name I don't have in front of me. I'm sorry. There's a lot of great scenes in here. I love the auction scene. Um, I love the setup to most of this stuff. I, I find the plot in this one is is pretty easy to follow. I'm not confused as I go along, which I love in a, in a Bond film. I'm often kind of finding myself lost. I love that the Bond theme was snuck into the movie with uh, him finding his contact in India. Although he seen that he knows it is a bit bizarre. It's really meta. Uh, but, you know, I'll let it go. I love the backgammon, backgammon sequence where he wins all the money. Although I could have really done without the super racist comments when he hands off the rupees to one of the guys and says this will keep you in curry for a few weeks. It's like, ugh, James Bond movies, you're better than that. You know, and then and then it's followed right up with a market sequence that's just full of really terrible Indian stereotypes with the nail bed and the sword swallower and just you know, you name it, it's in there. And I like that Bond uses the money he won to help him get away by giving it to the people often and throwing it around. But yeah, I could have done without the the cultural stereotypes. Thanks. That said, India is an amazing backdrop for a Bond film. It's it's beautiful, it's colorful, uh, unique, and I love that, for, with the exception of one, which I'll get into, they do a really, really good job of, of casting appropriate people for the roles, and it really gives an extra flavor to the movie. So I might as well get into it, since I brought it up. I really like the character of Kamal Khan, our Afghani prince, who is essentially our villain of this film, but it's pretty appalling, the whitewashed casting of the role. You know, it's a Caucasian French actor who plays him. I mean, I might let it go, maybe, in the 60s and 70s, but, man, we're in the 80s. We shouldn't be seeing this shit anymore. You know, and, and, and the film is surrounded with actors of who are cast in appropriate roles. Why the whitewashing in this one? It just feels like this is something that we should not be seeing anymore. It's gross. So now we move on to the women in the film. You know, the misogyny in this film is, is kept at a pretty solid minimum. For Bond in general, you know, there's a really off-putting scene in, in the Q sequence where Bond zooms in on the, the girl's cleavage in Q's office in and out. I mean, Q kind of scolds him for it, but not in a way that's meaningful that actually stops him from doing it. So there's two Bond girls in this movie, kind of, sort of. There's Magda, who is the underling to both Khan and Octopussy. And she and Bond pretty much have zero chemistry, but of course they end up having sex together. But at least it's because they both need each other for stuff. They're both taking advantage of each other and having fun with each other. So that's nice. You know, I really dug her departure down the uh, from the balcony using her dress to, to as silks to unwind herself. I thought that was pretty great. I like later on when they're they're both at the palace and Gobinda, the big big heavy, the big brute that works for Khan. He uh, he won't let him in for a nightcap with. Magda, and then Bond offers for Gobinda to come in for a nightcap. That was, that was cute. Uh, Gobinda is similar to Jaws, although he feels more rooted in the real world, where Jaws just felt like an undefeatable, 
cardboard character. Although pretty animated and enjoyable. I'm not going to shit on Jaws. He's a great character. Uh, but Gobinda was great. I really enjoyed him. I thought I believed him to be a real human being, though. Which So for me, he's like a step up from Jaws. So there's that. But that brings us to our main Bond girl, Maude Adams, uh, uh, as the title role of Octopussy. And she's phenomenal. And if I am correct... I believe she is the only woman in history to be a Bond girl twice. She was also in Man with the Golden Gun, although she was the secondary one there. She's the title character here. And it's all the more impressive because it's happening with the same actor playing Bond. You know, that was another Roger Moore film. I love that Octopussy calls Bond out for being okay with being a paid assassin for Queen and Country, but it won't be one for her. You know, she defends herself, and she's right, and Bond knows it. He won't apologize, of course, because he's Bond and she's a woman. But it's just a number of ways that shows why she's one of the best and strongest Bond girls. I really, really dug her. I mean, she had an army. She's awesome. Some other random, interesting stuff. When Bond is being chased through the jungle, he uh, the tiger just listens to him when he tells him to sit. I could have really done without the Tarzan scream. The throwing radial arm saw guy was uh, an interesting touch for an uh, over-the-top Bond villain. So I, I was glad he was dispatched of quickly, though, and, and wasn't someone that just kept on popping up and coming around. Because we also had those creepy twins, and uh, it didn't seem like we didn't ha- need to have both in one movie. So I'm glad that, that neither really over, overshadowed the other, and, and they're both dispatched with, and not overused, which Bond films tend to, to do with those kind of characters. You know, I found that typical in Bond films, the, the third act just felt like action sequence after action sequence. And, and story-wise, you know, you didn't really need them other than for spectacle. Uh, but I liked a lot of the stuff in it. I thought it was really great. I loved the train stuff. I loved him jumping from the car onto the train. I love that Q was part of the action in the end. I thought the, the very final sequence with, you know, Khan and Gobinda and Octopussy and Bond on, the, on that small plane and Bond on, on, top of the, on top of the roof of it trying to hold on and then trying to destroy the, not destroy the plane, but cut the wires to stop them from flying all crazy so he could get the upper hand. I thought that stuff was all great. Really, really enjoyed all of that. I thought, you know, Bond really deserved to win the day after such a, a fantastic sequence. The uh, the final moment with the, the, the now, which is kind of a, a cliche of Bond having sex on a boat to wrap up the movie, the, the people chanting in and out as they're rowing was a bit of an on-the-nose innuendo. But I will take it, because it's a Bond film, and that's the kind of stuff we're getting here. Overall, I really dug the movie. You know, outside of the casual racism and whitewashing, the misogyny is at a minimum, which is nice, finally. I love that the story really played into all the Cold War stuff that was going on at the time. And for the most part, I was more or less able to follow the plot, and it was kind of clear and simple, which is nice. Thank you, Bond. So next up is A View to a Kill, which is not only the last film in this second part of my ongoing James Bond series, but it's also the last film of the Roger Moore era, which I'm super sad about. And it's the last film where Lois Maxwell plays Money Penny. So there's a lot to be sad about, guys. Here's A View to a Kill. So that was A View to a Kill. I have no idea what the title of this film is talking about or what it means. So there's that. Um, outside of a really kind of fun 80s Duran Duran song, that was the opening credit sequence with a lot of neon stuff. That was fun. Uh, something I absolutely hated from the opening sequence was the quick cut to the Beach Boys song snowboarding down the, the, the hill. Uh, what a terrible choice. And it just made me go, oh shit, here we are in the return of silly James Bond. But it didn't seem to uh, continue on throughout too much. I gotta say, this film was pretty 80s riffic <laughs> in terms of a lot of it. But I have to say, I found myself liking this way more than I thought it was going to. I like that it wasn't about just saving the world. I like the Silicon Valley aspect to it in the modern day. I really like that it was just about stopping this one guy who was this crazy millionaire, billionaire, psychopath 
that was kind of a Nazi experiment. whole bunch of stuff going on in there. He was former KGB. You know, backstory notwithstanding. I like that. I really enjoyed Christopher Walken in the part of Zoran. I thought he was interesting. I thought he and Bond had a really interesting dynamic and it got personal. And there was a fun cat and mouse. I liked that they were both smart and that they were both just kind of messing with each other at points. I liked that he got his hands dirty. You know, I liked that he wasn't just the kind of villain that just came in and out here and there. I liked that he was a real constant thread throughout the entire movie. And that we got to see him in this weird, complicated relationship with Mayday. Uh, I mean, thank goodness they set up the fact that he's a psychopath from the, the experiments. Because he is, you know. his All of his people that are around him are completely disposable, including Mayday in the end. Um, but I really, really like that. I don't know why. I, I, I like Christopher Walken's character a lot more than I probably should have if I... You know, started writing down on paper and, and deconstructing him. And part of it is probably just because Walken himself is so goddamn charismatic. Uh, it's a really, really interesting Bond villain. Probably not the best Bond villain ever, obviously. But uh, I liked it a lot more than I thought it was going to. Uh, Bond girls in this movie. I don't think Mayday counts as an official Bond girl. I don't remember seeing her on any lists. But goddamn, that's a shame. She's interesting, uh, funky hairdos aside. She's pretty great. And, I mean, there's that great sex scene that she has with him earlier on where he snuck into her room and, and almost... He does it just to kind of get out of it by getting naked and being in her bed. He's expecting to get thrown his ass out of there, I think. And she kind of turns the tables on it and he becomes her conquest. It's a really great reversal and just shows how strong her character is. Really, really enjoyed that aspect of it. And I love that she turns around and it kind of the one that saves the day in the end. She sacrifices himself to, to go after Zorin. So kudos to Mayday. Easily one of the strongest characters in this film, if not, you know, the whole Bond legacy. Had a hard time getting behind uh, our main Bond girl, Susan Savannah, I believe her name is. Mostly because she's half the age of Roger Moore at this point in time. And that's just kind of a bit of a shame. Her character was fine. She was an average person. I like that she was smart. Um, but she was kind of just your typical girl who needs saving from James Bond. Uh, and I thought we'd kind of gotten away from that to an extent. Although we also have had a run nonstop of... of Agents and other women that are Bond's equal. So I guess we needed to get back to that before the end of Moore's era, sadly. Laurie Maxwell here is her last chance uh, to show off his money penny. And I like that she got to get out of the office. They got to go to a little horse race. It was nice to see some of the, the office people out and about enjoying in tuxes and top hats and fancy dresses. That was fun. One of my favorite Bond lines uh, in this one, they didn't feel like one of the quirky Roger Moore lines, was there's a, there's a point in the film where he's eyeing a woman. I think it's the the character I was just talking about, and someone makes a comment about him you know, controlling himself, and he said, on a mission, I'm expected to sacrifice myself. I thought that was a fun innuendo line from, from Bond. I love the bit about him using the air in the tires when he gets uh, caught underwater, to, to keep himself going until they, they disappear. I thought that was great. The fire truck escape was a bit much. Uh, first of all, not the most indescript vehicle. So the fact that he drives over the bridges going up, I, I buy that. But then they can't radio anyone on the other side to, to say, hey, there's a rogue fire truck. Maybe stop it. It's not the most <laughs> inconspicuous vehicle. I thought that was... Uh, that was a bit over the top. I like the Apple computers. I like that that was in there. Uh, I didn't understand. I get that Zoran's super rich guy. How does he have a computer program that can figure out who James Bond is? I mean, he works for the British Secret Service. How shitty is the secret part of their industry that face recognition software brings up James Bond's profile? I mean, what the fuck? You know, that bothered me. 
I love the use of landmarks in the film, from the Eiffel Tower to San Francisco Bridge. I thought that was all really, really great. You know, overall, I thought this was a fun movie. I like the horse race as a as a new twist on a chase for James Bond. Although I didn't understand why this whole um, thing was booby trapped to shift and change around, unless I guess he just had it customizable for for different skill sets. You know, maybe I'll buy that. I like the film ended with an axe fight. That was kind of fun on top of the San Francisco Bridge. You know, I think it's a strong outing for Roger Moore, and uh, and I'll be sad to see him go. Although he's not getting any younger, and you know, for the the Bond girl stuff to not play creepy, James Bond cannot be an older man unless they are willing to make the women um, his equal in in age as well as everything else. And that's not something that these films are probably ever going to be comfortable doing, having a, um, you know, a properly aged woman. So uh, there we are. Uh, I look forward to taking a bit of a break from these films as I've, I've watched them all in pretty close proximity. And then I look forward to starting in with uh, a new James Bond when we return with Timothy Dalton. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby together. Thanks for joining me for part two of my James Bond coverage. If you like the show, please subscribe to the podcast and spread the word about it. You can find me on Twitter, at Lon Jeremy, and on Facebook, check out Black Hole Films. Leave a review there or on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is you listen to this thing. And until next time, Go watch something you've never seen before. Thanks. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat.